My guest today is Hassan El Magari. Hassan is a two-time startup founder, consultant, and final year student majoring in computer engineering. He founded Ultrashock Gaming, a game marketing startup with a community of 500,000 members on Steam, and ran it for five years before selling it. He's passionate about startups and solving problems using software. Hassan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Very excited to have you here and chat about what you are up to. And, and uh, just reading your bio, you've got some super impressive stuff going on, like Ultrashot Gaming, uh, doing that, selling that, as well as as uh, studying at the same time. So I'm hoping we can get into all of that, um, what maybe some of your methods are, what what your experience is. Um, mm -hmm. But tell us about Ultrashock. How did Ultrashock get started? What's it all about? And uh, And maybe give us some detail about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Ultrashock Gaming um, kind of started by accident. Uh, I, I was a really big gamer back in the day, back in high school. Um, and I had a bunch of friends, some of whom were indie game devs. So they would kind of just develop games in their free time and then they would try to sell them. Uh, and I'd hear them constantly complain to me about like, hey, like I spent a year making this game and then I can't get it on these big PC platforms like Steam. Um, and at the time, Steam had a really convoluted process where you had to uh, post your game for the community and you had to get uh, over 500 people to say that they would buy your game before Steam even considered putting it on their platform. Um, so it was, as you can imagine, extremely difficult for these indie game devs who didn't previously have an audience or, or you know, didn't have anybody to take care of their marketing to get on on, on Steam. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of saw that opportunity and I was like, let me try to do something about it. Um, and so I started a little community on Steam. Um, it's a Steam group, which is essentially like a Facebook page or just a place where you can post things and people can comment and um, just like a little community. Um, so I started one and, and the idea was to do game giveaways to, to grow the group. And then once the group had a certain amount of members, I could start advertising like my friends games on there and tell people to like, oh, hey, like go vote on their game so they can make it to Steam. Um, and so that was the idea in the beginning. And so I uh, started reaching out to developers who already had their game on Steam. And I was just like, hey, can you send me five free copies of your game? I want to give it away in my group. Um, and it was kind of just a win-win situation. Um, they would get some exposure from giving away, from me giving away the games. And then my group would be growing because I would be constantly doing these, these game giveaways. Um, and so fast forward six months, we reached uh, about 50,000 members in, in the group. Um, which is awesome. And uh, yeah, and then that's when I realized I'm like, okay, like, let me start doing something about it. Um, and so that's when I actually like turned it into a real company. I got some of my friends games on Steam, actually, and we started offering that as a package. Um, so for a one time fee of like 500 to $1,000, we could get people's game on Steam. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started off. Wow, that's really cool. Um, what like how would you refer to the kind of company that Ultrashock is? Is it like a an agency of some sort? Is there like a category for this this type of company? Like, wh where does it sit exactly? Yeah, uh, so it's it's formally known as like a game publisher. Um, so traditionally, a game publisher is a company that that has a lot of money and resources to help people uh, with all aspects of their game besides actually developing it. 
So the idea was you'd have a separate developer or even a separate studio develop a game. And then the publishing company would actually um, help them publish it on these big platforms. They would have all the connections. They would take care of all the marketing plans. They would maybe help with the copywriting, uh, making a really attractive trailer, uh, doing promotions from time to time. So they kind of just take care of everything outside of game dev. Uh, and so that's that's kind of where we fell into. Um, I started initially by just helping people get on Steam. And then we pivoted towards this publishing model where uh, we had a team of beta testers to, to play the game and, and check it for tests. We had uh, someone that did our copywriting, so to, to, to make really attractive store pages. We had someone in-house that, that made really attractive trailers. Um, I, I did most of the marketing, so I came up with the marketing plans and, and ran the promotions and did all this. Um, and you know, we just did all this for uh, a royalty fee of maybe like 20 to 25% of their of the profits of the game so they didn't ha they didn't have to pay up front that's really cool so 20 to 25 percent is that ongoing profits or is that like a one-time thing or would you be like in an ongoing way getting recurring revenue from these games exactly it'd be ongoing as long as our relationship uh lasted that's really cool that's that's very cool so this strikes me as something that's very um potentially challenging to break into because you know maybe the incumbents are are uh, very resource rich. They've got a lot of, um, well, experience for one under their belt. They've got a lot of money and, and people with the know-how. Was it difficult to kind of more or less break into this, uh, this, this vertical, if you will, uh, or, or was it pretty simple to get in? Give me, give me the, uh, kind of the, the story there. For sure. Uh, so the big thing that we had going for us uh, was size. We had access to a huge community, uh, which a lot of game publishers didn't have. Um, they had like really impressive teams. They had people with tons of experience on their team that, that did all this stuff, um, but they didn't have like nearly the reach that we had, especially later on. And so um, I kind of, I, I was in a situation where I could afford to take things very slowly. And we actually did $0 in revenue for our first year because all I focused on is growth. Um, growing the groups, like I said, after six months, we got up to 50,000 members. And then after that, we actually acquired a few other communities and, and just did more and more and more giveaways until we hit that like half a million gamers about a year in. And so at that point, I hadn't made any money. Um, and so, you know, when you're coming up to an indie dev and you say, hey, I have a community of half a million people on Steam that I can help market your game to and I can help like do all this kind of stuff. You know, that that sounds very attractive, even if it's coming from a high school student, which at the time I, I was in high school, a high school student with zero background in business or marketing or any of this. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's uh, that's very cool. Very uh, um, kind of bootstrap fashion, getting in there just with, you know, the sweat and the know-how that you 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 had, which is which is awesome. So you uh, you came to an exit. It sounds like with with Ultrashock. Um, what's the story there? It, was it? Uh, w did you feel that it was time to move on to something else? Did you see a good opportunity to um, to make some money from it, or or what was your kind of impetus to to want to sell it? For sure. Um, so I really ran it for about two or three years, uh, more or less full time. Right, like. 30 to 40 hours a week on, on top of school. Um, and really when I got to that point after three years, um, I had stopped gaming myself. So I kind of lost passion for gaming. Um, I personally thought it was a little bit of a waste of time. And so I felt guilty, you know, running a company that that's literal mission is to help people sell more games. So it felt a little uh, hypocritical. Um, and it was really that point where I was like, you know, I'm not passionate about this anymore. I, I'm not, I don't enjoy the space. I should probably try to sell it. Um, and so 
I actually talked to a few people and I got it valued based on the offers I got. It was, it was around a hundred, $250,000. Um, but at that point, like I, I just couldn't bring myself to sell it. Uh, right. you know, it was, it was kind of like my baby. I ran it for, for this two or three years. Um, and I just convinced myself to just keep it on the back burner and maybe pick it up after a few years or sell it after a few years. Um, and so that was probably the single biggest mistake of, of my, uh, startup career. Cause I, I basically just let it sit there for two years, not running. Um, we lost almost half of our members. We lost like 90% of our activity. Um, we weren't doing like any giveaways or any, like we, we didn't have any like active contracts during that time. Um, and so it, it wasn't until uh, late uh, last year, late of 2020, where I was like, you know what? I, I have this startup sitting there collecting dust. I should just try to sell it, even though it's not worth nearly as much. Um, and so I, I just went on, uh, I think it was micro acquire and I listed it mm -hmm. on there. I got some offers. I talked to some people and um, I ended up selling for, less than 10% of what I could have gotten a few years uh, earlier. Oh, wow. uh, so ended up selling for about 10,000 at the end. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Interesting, yeah, well, I mean, I guess, man, it's such a, I mean, I, I've never gone through this experience that you've had. I've never um, sold a, a startup or anything like that, but, um, you know, extrapolating about it, I imagine that it's, it's gotta be such a tough decision, right? Because like, I, I think back to to when uh, when we sold our, our house a few years ago and we had an offer that was below what we wanted, but, uh, and we thought we might get some more activity. So we're like, you know what, we're gonna pass on it. And it, it was not like, it, I think it was like two years later that we finally sold it for like a much lower, <laughs> a much lower price. So, mm -hmm. you know, trying to time the market or, or just gauge what the, the, the value of something could be is, is a tricky thing to do. Um, so yeah, certainly it's, it's gotta be tricky to, to say like, you know, I'm only getting this much for an offer. Um, I think I'll, I'll hold it. What, um, what would you recommend that people, I mean, given your experience, if, if someone's in this position that they, they've built something and there's a potential sale on the table, do you have anything to offer that you'd say, like, you should really look at it in this way, or you should really be thinking about this, anything you you'd advise people about? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the biggest thing I'd say is try to be as honest as you can to yourself. Because uh, during this time, I, I feel like I wasn't honest to myself and I was kind of just hiding and saying, oh yeah, like I'll pick it up in a few years. I'll pick it up in a few years just so I didn't have to like really embrace the reality of what was happening, which is that I have lost passion for this completely. And it, it wasn't like, you know, lost passion as in like, oh, I got really demotivated for a couple of weeks and I was going to pick it back up. This was just like, oh, I've exited the gaming industry. I have no interest in this whatsoever because uh, that's an, an important distinction to make, right? It doesn't, if you're running low on motivation, it doesn't mean you should say that, oh, I'm not passionate about this anymore and just like uh, get rid of what you're doing. Um, but really just try to be real with yourself. Uh, try to talk it over with one or two of your really good friends um, and really, really be brutally honest. Uh, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll figure out if it's the right time for you to sell or whether to, to take it even further. Very cool. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, an important, um, but I think from what I sense a, a difficult decision that, uh, that's, you've got to make at, at certain points. Um, so I guess one thing that I, I'd love to, to talk about is how you are handling things now. So you you've got uh, this you know exit that you that you made um, from Ultrashock, uh, but you're up to a lot of other stuff, right? Like you're a consultant um, and you're you're a startup founder. You're also doing your C CE degree, computer engineering degree. Um, how do you kind of juggle all those things? What do you, what do you do to like keep yourself? Um, I don't know, sane in, in all those aspects. Like what's, uh, what's your, your recipe for, for success there? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good question. Um, 
I don't think I really have any secrets. I think it's mostly uh, just the basics, like sleep well and eat well and exercise. And people don't really want to hear that because that's, you know, that they're everybody knows that on on a um, on a certain level. But like, I I can't overemphasize how important those things are. And doing that kind of just allows you to operate at peak capacity. And if you're doing you're operating at peak capacity. You're not distracted. I try to keep my phone outside of where I'm working 100% of the time um, and really go through these like one to two hour focus sessions. Um, mm-hmm. I just find that I get so much work done um, if, if I really like budget my time accordingly. So I, I just try to prioritize based on what's important to me at a certain point. And, and the important thing to remember is people hear these things like, oh, he's like doing these three things or this other person is like running the startup and they're doing this and they're doing that. It's it's important to remember that they're not putting in 100% of their effort into one thing at a time, really. Mm-hmm. There are weeks where, for example, for me, I have finals coming up. So everything else that I'm doing kind of takes a back burner. If I'm doing some consulting, um, like I'm, I'm upfront with the client I'm, and, and I say like, hey, I'm not gonna put in a lot of hours this week or I've already budgeted for that ahead of time. Um, right. So there are weeks where I'm mostly focusing on, on school. There are weeks where I'm mostly focusing on on consulting, there's other weeks where I'm focusing on learning a new skill. Um, so it's really just, uh, you know, prioritizing different things based on um, what what your priorities are at the time. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, any advice for kind of uh, the, the tactical things to do to to I don't know create the opportunity for that those, those focus sessions? I mean, do you, what what does your day look like typically? Do you kind of carve that out in the calendar ahead of time, or do you sort of prioritize at the top of the day? What, what's your what's your approach there? Yeah. Um, so. About calendars, uh, I kind of see it as two approaches, and I think Paul Graham wrote about this, where uh, he said that there's a maker schedule and there's a manager schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a manager schedule is kind of where you uh, time slot everything in your calendar. Like your full day is like hour by hour uh, in your calendar, like what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and then the maker's day is kind of where you take a half day chunk and you budget it towards something. like. During this half day, I'm going to write or I'm going to, and and it's typically better to do for more creative things like writing or coding or like doing something where getting into the flow and working on it is a lot more advantageous than spending, you know, 30 minutes fixing a bug and then the next 30 minutes going into a meeting and then the next 30 minutes and you kind of have your concentration broken up. Um, So I try to split my days between the two. Uh, These days it's mostly... um, these days it's mostly like a maker schedule. So it's more like free form. Um, but back when I was running the business, it, it was definitely like a manager schedule kind of thing where I write something on my calendar. I time block hourly chunks. Um, and I just, I stick to that. And that's, it's really hard to do, um, when you have no motivation to do the, the, the things on your calendar and it, it happens all the time, but I, I just really try to push through that as much as possible. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Much of the time I've experienced this, it's like trying to like just trudge through the, uh, the stuff that, you know, needs to be done, but is, is maybe not, (laughs) not the top of your list for things that you want to do. It can be, it can be a bit painful, but, um, one thing that I found is like the more you exercise that muscle of just, just making yourself do it, just taking the first step, which then makes the subsequent steps easier. Um, the more you'll be able to just do those <laughs> things that you don't want to do, uh, you know, more easily in the future. So yeah, oh, yeah. I've been there for sure. For sure. Um, tell me about your other kind of startup endeavors. Um, so UltraShock is one thing do you, do you have another startup on the go right now, or are you in the midst of starting something? What's, uh, what's your kind of your deal with startups right now? Yeah. Um, so right now it's mostly just some consulting on the side. Um, 
during well actually after ultrashock i i started a um another startup that that, that didn't really make it it was a uh, drone AI company. It was, it was kind of, the, the idea was to have drones using a special type of camera called a multi-spectral camera. And um, they would be helping farmers make better decisions, uh, right. like telling them to uh, basically decreasing their operating costs, like decreasing their water usage and, and their pesticide usage and all this. Um, and sometimes they, like some farmers spend, you know, 70K if it's like a medium sized farm on, on these things a year. Um, yeah. And so having like a drone to fly over their land and really take these pictures and analyze them and tell them, oh, like this is actually how much you should be uh, watering your, uh, your your crops and also identifying diseases very early on. So kind of trying to do all this stuff, but we ran into a lot of roadblocks. Um, I, I tried to do this uh, working with a friend back in my home country of, of Morocco um, and uh, basically in this business, we just needed to raise a lot of money up front because the, yeah. the drones were kind of the drones actually were probably the cheapest part it was a few thousand dollars the the cameras started at twenty thousand dollars because we needed a yeah. very specialized type uh, so we needed to raise 100k right away um we got 50k from an investor and then we couldn't close the round um so we ended up just just grabbing it uh um, gotcha gotcha but, yeah that's uh, uh that's an interesting space i i explored that uh myself really? years ago back in man 2011 i think 2012 so very early days of this whole kind of industry, if you want to call it that, um, where drones were just starting to become something that, that could do this sort of thing. And, you know, the camera technology was not quite there. Back then, it was much, much more expensive, right? Like, you'd, you'd be looking at a much higher cost for the drones and the cameras. So I ended up not being able to do anything, uh, not having any money, just being out of school at the time. So I uh, didn't do much there. But it's been interesting to see various companies pop up that do this sort of thing. And it's made me wonder if um, there's there's big business there it sounds like there is it sounds like you know farmers if they have um decent sized farms they really want to know this information so i guess you you assess the market uh, it sounds like how did you go about um being able to tell that there was a demand for this or that there was a, a need for this sort of thing that made you want to explore it more Honestly, I, I just got a little lucky and my friend came up to me with the idea. Um, he presented it to me. Um, I did a bunch of research and, and his family is kind of into like owns a few farms back in my home country. And he kind of saw this problem pop up. Um, and then, yeah, I, I did my own market research. I talked to a bunch of people and we kind of validated that there was that demand, at least in developing countries like um, Morocco, where I'm from. Um, here in the US, it's kind of standard that like most big farms kind of use that technology already and it's kind of standardized. But in developing countries where it's not yet present, um, that's where we saw like a really big gap in the market. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so what are you saying? I mean, you're plugged into uh, the development community. Um, you know, you're you're kind of, um, you're, you're on Twitter, you're doing things there uh, uh, development wise. What are you saying that's like, um, I guess, thinking about thinking about um, ideas or, or opportunities that developers might be looking at for startups um, kind of the, in, in, in this decade? What are, what are you seeing? What's popping out to you as, as something that people should be paying attention to right now? Yeah, that's uh that's a really great idea. As as far as like big trends, um microservices is kind of cool to me. Uh I think that's still um not necessarily a very new space, but I, I think a lot of developers like developer efficiency is still very how do I say this? Um 
Yeah, I, I think for microservices, there's still a lot of problems in using them. And I've been seeing a few startups come up like in microservices and in, in general and like developer experience. Um, right. And so those startups are, are, are super interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for me personally, like I, I look at the trends and, and it's nice, but at the end of the day, I just try to build something that I'm passionate about, right? I'm not passionate about like, as of right now, like microservices or, or improving developer experience in, in uh, most of these ways, it's more like, let me brainstorm my problems and see if I can build something for myself. Like that's, because uh, yep. I feel like in, in building a startup, like motivation is, is one of the biggest things, right? You can only do something for so long that you don't feel passionate about. And that's kind of what helped me when I was starting out with putting so much time into this in the beginning. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, I used to work 30, 40 hours on top of 30, 40 hours of school. Um, yeah. And, you know, my, my social life suffered for, for about two years when, when I did that. And um, it was, it was tough. It was, uh, I, I would wake up in the morning, I'd go to school, I'd come back at like three or four, I do homework for an hour till five. And then from five to like 1am, I'd be working on the startup and wow. weekends, it would be the full day. Um, so yeah. I think if you're not passionate about something on like, you're not going to be able to do that sustainably at least. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Well, what are, what are some things that you're passionate about? Do you have uh, your sights on um, starting up some other new stuff? What's uh, what's on your mind for potential startups? Yeah. Uh, so for 2021, actually, uh, my biggest thing is I want to improve my coding skills. So I'm kind of taking, I'm trying to take a year off out of like starting something new or going into a new venture and just really work on just developing my skills, like becoming a really good full stack developer who, uh, you know, if I can, if I can get an idea, I can just like design and, and launch an MVP myself and then iterate on that and, and right. potentially start something around that. And so I feel like that's a skill I'm lacking right now. Um, I started coding relatively, uh, recently about 10 months ago is when I okay. first started like HTML and CSS and, and JavaScript. And so I, I still have a long way to go. And so, so right now I'm kind of keeping a, a document of ideas I'm interested in. If I see something, I'm adding it to that. Um, and I'm just developing my, my coding skills that at the end of it, I can kind of pick out an idea and, and, and try to do it. Very cool. Very cool. Um, back on the, the, the subject of uh, kind of managing your time across all these various things you, you're, you're doing. I know you had a, a pretty popular tweet, which was going into sort of the lessons learned by, I guess, a professor, a, a CS professor. Um, and the, the uh, well, the, the, here, I'll read the tweet. Time management from a dying professor. When Randy Posh, I believe it's pronounced, a, a renowned computer science professor got cancer, he decided to give one last lecture on time management before he died. These are my top 10 takeaways from this brilliant lecture. Um, what were some of those takeaways? What, uh, what did you learn uh, about time management that you liked from that? Yeah, so really a lot of really great things from that lecture. Um, one of the biggest things is the, the, the Eisenhower decision matrix. And a lot of people are, are aware of this, right? Like the urgent, non-urgent, and then important, non-important, like two by two matrix. Mm -hmm. um, and really the biggest thing I, I took out of that is a lot of people focus on the important and urgent tasks or just the urgent tasks. And really what gets put on the back burner is the tasks that are important, but not urgent. And so these are the tasks that really contribute to like long-term growth. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say like an example of that um, could be like uh, applying it to just someone's life, right? That could be exercise, for example, right? Where that's not necessarily urgent, right? It's not urgent that you exercise at all, at least in, in like right now, but, but that's something that if you do will, you know, will impact 
will really have a positive impact on on you long term. And so that's 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 one of the cool things I I picked out. Um, another cool thing is um, there's a law that I'm that I'm forgetting the name of, but it's basically that like time expands to fill um, whatever yeah whatever like deadline you give it. Um, and so if you have an assignment and you know it's due in a week, then you're probably going to take that full week to do it. Uh, and so it's the idea of like imposing fake deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've actually tried this before and it's worked out for me really well, but you have to really convince yourself that, oh, okay, like I have to get something done by this mm-hmm. time. Um, and, and that's another thing, like going back to, to making a calendar. Um, if you time block tasks, like say, okay, I'm only spending an hour on this task. Um, mm-hmm. It really changes your perception and um, how much you can get done. Um, right. But yeah, other than that, it's kind of just about uh, working during the times where you feel the most energized. Uh, some people are morning people, some people are night people, just realizing what you like and then really scheduling all your hard work during that time. Uh, and then kind of just reflecting every week on things. Um, that's one of my favorite ideas, basically just iterating on yourself um, yeah. kind of every week, see what you did well, what you didn't do well, and try to improve even by like 1%. And um, it really goes a long way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I I do this. I I I suspect many other people do it as well. Where if I have lots of opportunities coming up, I look at how many hours are in the day, and I say, perfect. I can fill every single minute of every one of those hours with with work, and it'll be just fine. But of course, when it comes time to to execute and, and all that, it really becomes apparent that there. Uh, like you just said, there are certain times in the day that are good for like these bursts of work. And then at other times, you kind of just got to let your brain uh, coast. At least that's what I've found. Um, I, I'm definitely not a person that can be at 100% every hour of the day. That's just not <laughs> not how I Oh, work. yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think anybody can, honestly. Mm-hmm. And if, if people do say that, I'd honestly feel like they're they're just lying or something yeah. i always um, think about these like stories we hear about um tech uh, executives who schedule in like their bathroom breaks and and just hold the the, the they'll not they'll hold it until it, it's that bathroom break uh, time and they they give themselves like 30 seconds for it and i can't imagine that they're actually getting high quality work done throughout those the hours of that day i just it, it doesn't seem like it's possible um I I like the idea of the pretend deadline um, the to, to help yourself with procrastination. I've tried that to some extent um, with varying degrees of success. Uh, you mentioned the calendar aspects, like actually blocking it in the calendar to help you visually see the amount of time you've got. Any other things that have worked well to convince yourself that that deadline is real? Because, you know, we get a deadline from a client or something. It's like, oh, I got to do this, uh, you know, and, and we're very motivated to, to carry carry it out but um when it's self-imposed i wonder like what what kind of things can we do to trick ourselves that this is a real deadline yeah great question um one one of the things that works for me is when i do my weekly reflection um i reflect on my week and i really go through it um and so if i did impose a deadline on myself to finish something by a certain day and I, i didn't get it done and i go to my weekly reflection i generally feel bad that like oh like i wanted to do this thing but i didn't um and i kind of push myself to say okay next week i'm really gonna stick to my fake deadlines um and and really try to improve and so yeah by doing those weekly reflections i can i can look back and i can say okay i did it or i didn't do it um and just the satisfaction of looking back on a week and 
just reflecting on each day and being like, oh my God, I got all this stuff done. I imposed these deadlines on myself. I got them done. I'm a productive person. Just like saying that and even like believing it kind of helps you do the same thing for the, So when the next week rolls around, you set a fake deadline for yourself to accomplish something else. You say like, oh, I don't want to let myself down when I do my weekly reflection in three days, I really want to get this thing done so I can feel that satisfaction. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's worked out for me. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that I want to explore a bit more too, is like, well, journaling, uh, to begin with, but also like reflecting on, um, uh, on my week and, and kind of like thinking back as to what I've done and, and whatnot. Um, I, I haven't really delved into that. Do you do like, like actual journaling throughout the week? Is that something you're, you're into? Yeah. Yeah, I do. At this point, um, almost daily. I, I kind of just open up, uh, I use notion, I open up notion and I just journal whatever's on my mind. Um, I don't have any specific format except for the, for the weekly reflections. Um, so I kind of just like the, the way I think about it, we, we spend a lot of time just thinking and we just randomly have things on our mind. And so if I'm working on something and I find my mind just like drifting away, um, mm -hmm. that's usually a sign of like either a, like I need a break. I should go take a walk. I should just relax for a little bit or B, which happens more often. Like I just have something else on my mind and I need to get rid of it. And so I open up Notion, I kind of just do a brain dump. And I say, hey, like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing. Um, and I kind of just th think through it and write it down. And just that process makes me feel so much better. And my brain feels like it doesn't need to hold in that information anymore because I just wrote right. it down. And I can reference it, like, after I finish up my task, at the end of the day, I can go back and read it and really think about it some more if I want to. Um, and so journaling has been helping me a lot, just clearing my mind and helping me get more done. Um, and then the weekly reflections is where I have a, a format where, in the beginning, I just write thoughts on my week, like, oh, I thought this week went really well, uh, whatever, really. I, I just write anything on my mind, and then I have a section for what went well. Um, and so I can write down anything that went well. I have a section for what didn't go so well. Uh, and then the final section, which I think is the most important, I have like action items for the next week. Like, hey, I'm, I, I only exercised uh, three times the week before, I'm really going to try to exercise four times. And I have like a checkbox so that every time I exercise, I can go to that weekly reflection from the previous week and check it off and say, okay, I got one done, three more to go. Um, right. And then at each weekly reflection, I, I reflect on like the action items for, for the previous week. Um, right. And so that's kind of just like a very uh, low time commitment too. I might spend five minutes a day journaling. It's usually not more than that. And the weekly reflections, maybe a little more 15 minutes, but that's really an hour a week that, that saves me so much time and, and really just helps me improve. Cool. That's really cool. You, uh, you tweet a lot about productivity. Um, any other productivity hacks that, uh, that people should be aware of anything you've found that's, uh, that's useful for getting stuff done throughout the week? Uh, I, I think these are kind of just the big things, um, do, do the basics, right? I, I, uh, I have this uh, site called high ROI tasks.com, which okay. is basically, uh, some tasks that you can do that just have a, a disproportionate effect on, on your life. Um, and so that stuff just includes like journaling and taking walks and, and doing all this kind of stuff. But besides that, just really focus on the basics, make sure you're, you're eating well, make sure you're sleeping enough, make sure you're uh, exercising semi-regularly. Uh, and then after doing those three things, because those three things are the real, like they're the huge optimizations. A lot of right. people neglect that stuff and go and try to time block their calendar or try to really do these reflections or do all this. Like these are, I see these as like micro optimizations, like they're going to help you a little bit. But really doing the basic three are what's really going to gonna gonna boost your um, productivity. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm reading highrotasks.com right now. We'll link that up as well. Um, and lots of good stuff here. The the big three, like you mentioned, sleep, diet, and exercise. I, I definitely think those would be my big three for sure. Yeah, for me, sleep is the one that has not been good for the last year because uh, we've got two kids at home and it is uh, the case that some one of them is up every night at some point. That's tough. <laughs> it's tough. I, uh, on average, man, it's got to be like six hours hours that I get, I think, uh, uh, on average these days, you know, and broken up too, because the, the kids are up. Um, do you, yeah. do you sleep like eight hours typically more than eight hours? Usually about eight hours on average. Um, yeah. if I stay up late working on something and I have an early morning, I try to take a nap too. Um, yep. naps I feel like are amazing. Like you just take a 15, yeah. 20 minute nap and, um, you usually wake up feeling, feeling a lot better. Um, so yeah. Totally. yeah. The key is not a long nap where you start to get into your, uh, you know, your actual uh, sleep cycle. That that will exactly. No. Mm -hmm. uh, what about screen time before sleeping? So I this is something that I've been interested in in experimenting with. Maybe you've experimented and have some results. But I typically will watch like a YouTube video before uh, I, I shut my eyes. Like so, I'll be there in bed with with my phone in my hand watching a YouTube video, uh, and I don't. Like I don't have any trouble falling asleep. I don't have any kind of issues with with sleeping at all. If anything, like watching something that is somehow relaxing kind of makes me zonk out. But I I do wonder if the the blue light uh, from the phone, even though I use the like the night mode or whatever, um, I do wonder if it has some effect on the quality of my sleep at all. Um, I don't know if there's been studies about that or if you've experimented. But uh, but what do you find? Yeah, uh, I I agree with you honestly. I I um. Right now, my my sleeping isn't amazing either. I I, I have to fix it because I got back to using my phone and kind of just browsing Twitter or watching a quick video before I sleep. But I I have experimented with with really not, no screen time about an hour an hour and a half before sleeping, um, and I I just found that I was able to function a little bit better or function a little bit better off of less sleep, even though I was. Um, yeah. I was sleeping around the same time. It wasn't about, you know, falling asleep faster. Like you said, it's just mostly about, you know, the quality of your sleep. Um, so I, I found it to be beneficial and I, and I want to get back to that. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's your advice here for, so you've got on personal tasks, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, turning a knowledge slash advice into action. Uh, what's that one all about? And, and why is that an important, uh, high ROI task? For sure. So most people, I feel like, are just passive consumers. Um, we sit in front of a computer all day and we just watch YouTube videos and watch Netflix and maybe like some uh, some of us that are productive may read some books. But really, at the end of the day, we're just consuming so much information that the brain really just can't absorb. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just kind of how we're living. We're just consuming information and the next day comes, we consume more information and, and really nothing gets done. We tell ourselves it's productive to read a book, but really reading a book and then doing nothing about it, it's, it doesn't really do anything for you. Like uh, reading a book about working out, for example, or reading a book about how to manage your time, right? Like you get all these strategies for managing your time, but if you don't actually implement them, then you might as well have not read the book. Um, and so I, I think that's a place where a lot of people, including myself, fall short of really turning that knowledge into action. Um, so for me, that's mostly in the form of like note taking and then and then following up. So when I read a book these days, um, I, I kind of read and then I have my, my computer next to me, I have Notion open. Um, and as I'm reading, like whenever I get like 
uh, an idea from that book that I think would be beneficial, I write it in my notes. And so I, I take a ton of notes. Um, and then at the end of the book, after I finish, I go through my notes and I try to make them actionable, right? If I read about a specific strategy and I want to try that, I will go to my to-do list and I will put it on there and I'd say, hey, try this strategy on this day. Uh, or I go to my calendar and I put a huge like thing on there like, oh, on this day, make sure you do this. Um, so it's really about taking that information, putting it into your own words, into notes. And then I generally try to, to summarize it in my own words because that helps me. Um, so I try to post it on like a Twitter thread or I try to write a quick blog post about it. And that kind of just helps me absorb it even more. And I get more information from people, especially if people have questions or if they have additional resources I should check out. Um, and so kind of just following that loop of consuming and then taking notes and then turning those notes into a blog or a tweet. And then also privately turning those notes into action items that I directly put on my to-do list or calendar just really uh, uh, helps me really apply what I learn. Yeah, that's really cool. You, you've got a, a fair Twitter following. You've got 35.9K followers uh, as of the time of this recording. Um, I've had Daniel Vassallo on the podcast before. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he uh, he tweets a lot about tweeting. He's a, he's a meta tweeter in many ways where he talks about if you want to build an audience on Twitter and you know, many <clears throat> for many people, they want to do that. Uh, it, it can be a useful thing. There's, there's lots of benefits from it. Um, what you should do is do interesting stuff in the real world and then and tell the story of that on Twitter. Um, lots of ways to grow a Twitter audience. I'm wondering, I'm curious about your um, your growth on Twitter. Where where uh, did it come from and, and when, when did most of it happen? Yeah, so most of it actually happened about five years ago when I was running um, Ultrashock Gaming. Um, so as I mentioned, we had a community of half a million people. Um, and so being the CEO of, of, of that company kind of had, I've just had a lot of gamers from that community go and follow me on, on, on Twitter. Um, so that was the vast majority of my Twitter audience, um, uh, which unfortunately is probably not easily replicable by, by other people. Um, but yeah, so I, I had a kind of a weird Twitter journey where a lot of people followed me five years ago. I stopped using Twitter for five years. Uh, mm -hmm. and then really in mid 2020 is when I picked it back up again. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and really when I picked it back up, most all of my followers were, were gamers. And so I kind of had to transition a little bit into like the development and productivity world. And so I, I went and I just followed a bunch of uh, developers. I joined a few communities. I started interacting with their tweets. And then through that, I'm, I'm starting to grow a little bit of an audience of like developers right now. Very cool. That's awesome. And uh, I'm excited to, to follow along to see how your, your journey goes. Um, probably a good good uh, time to start wrapping up. Is there anything that you want to uh, kind of uh, direct people towards? Anything people should check out of yours? We'll, we'll definitely link up uh, your Twitter and some of your sites like High ROI Tasks. Uh, anything else people should be looking at? Uh, that sounds good. I, I also blog at elmagari.com. So that's, uh, that's uh, another place you can go. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. So Twitter and high ROI and your blog. Just copying that down. Um, perfect. Well, um, thanks for coming on today, man. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and, and hearing your story. And I'm sure people will glean a lot from your experience. So we really appreciate you uh, sharing it with us. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate all the insightful questions. Awesome. Take care.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 41 with Hassan Al-Magari. You can find links to all the resources that Hassan mentioned over at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe. Head over to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe. And if you want to leave a rating and review, that would be awesome. Check us out on Twitter, twitter.com slash coderpodcast. Thank you.